Now, would you take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the first book in the Bible. Just go to the left in the very first book you'll be there. We are in the book of Genesis. And I'd like you to turn to Genesis chapter 42. We're continuing our story in a study, rather, in the story of Joseph. And the Joseph story is one of those stories in the Bible that is captivating from the very beginning all the way to the end. I don't think there's a dull moment in the story of Joseph in the 13 chapters that are there. A number of years ago, a group of literary critics got together in Boston and they decided to vote on what they felt would be the best short story ever written. People voted privately, anonymously, wrote it down on paper. And what they voted by far the best short story ever written was the story of Joseph. And I agree with that. It's such a story filled with drama. It's better than going to a movie and seeing something. It's a very moving story. And most importantly, it's a story which overflows with many spiritual lessons for you and for me. Things that we can learn and still apply to our lives today, though historically this is thousands of years ago, the implications can still be correct today because of things that we go through. Especially everyone in this room is old enough to have a past. And I've given the title of the message the title this morning, Are You Willing to Face Your Past? Now I know on the back of the worship guide it says Scott Lewald. Trust me, Scott has never looked this bad, nor will he ever look this bad. This is not Scott Lewald. That was a mistake. But if you want to jot something down on the back, there's some space there to do that. But the big question, and we're dealing with the various questions in the study on Joseph, today, are you willing to face your past? I can't assume this morning that uh, you know every detail in the life of Joseph. I do want you to know that we're blessed today in particular to have our entire uh, youth department with us. They came in for communion, junior high school and high school. Church, would you make them all feel welcome for being in here with us today, guys? Thank you so much for worshiping with us. And if you'll allow me, by way of review, let me give you a quick summary of where we've been. You see, in the Bible, when you read after the creation in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you come to the story of God dealing with a family. And the family that God chooses to deal with has a patriarch by the name of Abraham. Abraham is the leader of what God will do new for not only the people of Israel, but for the entire world. And Abraham had a son. His name was Isaac. And Isaac had a son, and his name was Jacob. That's the way it works, young people, just generation after generation. And this was the covenant family of God that you can read about so many times in the Bible. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons and one daughter and four different wives all at the same time. Now, you heard that right. All four women living together at the same time with Jacob. And it wasn't like today where you think, well, maybe they're consecutive or in sequence. No, they were all together. This family was so messed up that they could have been on the Jerry Springer show about every month. They, they, they were so messed up that they hated one of the brothers so badly they decided to kill him. And they decided to kill him because Joseph was his father, father's favorite one. Dad doted on Joseph. I've often wondered as I've read this story, why didn't the little girl be the one that was spoiled? Twelve boys, one girl. I go for pigtails and, and lace over blue denim and ugly all the time. 
but that Joseph was one that he was doting on and, and loving on so very much. And his brothers hated Joseph, as you might imagine they would, because dad ignored them while he was caring for Joseph. So much so that one day the brothers decide they're going to kill Joseph. But after they had beaten him, after they had emotionally tortured him, which we really don't know from reading that the first time in Genesis chapter 39, it's later in a different chapter that we read that Joseph begged them for his life and cried out to them that they would spare him. They decided after all that torture that they weren't going to kill him, but to sell him as a slave for the rest of his life. And I suppose that was kind of the brothers, you know, to make that decision. But the last time we see Joseph and the brothers, Joseph is in a caravan being taken down to Egypt, having been sold as a slave and heading toward Egypt. When he gets to Egypt, he's sold to a very dignified and distinguished individual by the name of Potiphar. And Potiphar had a very important position in Pharaoh's leadership. And so God blessed, uh, blessed Joseph. And before long, this young kid, 17, 18 years old, just a teenager, is now running all of Potiphar's house, all of it. And then something begins to happen. Potiphar's wife decides she wants to seduce this teenager. And so he resists that and runs. And, and because he did the right thing, he ended up in prison because of it. He gets in jail for having done the right thing. And uh, he's accused and convicted of a crime he didn't commit. And he was put in prison for really what was someone else's crime. And he wasn't in prison long until Joseph was pretty soon running the entire prison. I mean, this kid prospered wherever you put him. He could, you could put him out in the desert, and he would find a way to make cactus soup. He figured out a way to make everything work wherever he was. And there's some strange circumstances that bring Joseph before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. You may remember that, that uh, Joseph had these dreams when he was at home as a teenager, saying that his brothers were going to bow down before him, that his parents were going to do the very same. Well, when he gets in prison, then the butler and the baker have dreams. And he interprets those dreams, and he tells them that God is the one that interprets the dreams. Excuse me. I, I uh, washed my mouth, and I can't do a thing with it. And so uh, Pharaoh has dreams. And uh, they say, man, can anyone interpret Pharaoh's dreams? And you'll remember that the uh, butler said, oh, yes, I remember a man that was in prison, and he could interpret those dreams for you. And so they bring uh, Joseph before Pharaoh, and he interprets dream, the dreams of Pharaoh, and he says, Pharaoh, here's what your dreams mean. There's going to be seven years of agricultural plenty in the land, but then there's going to be seven years of drought. It's going to be like COVID when everyone hides toilet paper. You really need to get ready and prepare and store up everything you can right now to make it through those lean years. You've got to store up all the grain you can in these good years so there'll be some grain in the seven bad years. And Pharaoh looked at him and says, great, I believe you. In fact, I believe you so much, I need someone to oversee it, as you've said. And so I appoint you to be the second in command. Only to me will you submit, everyone else will submit to you. And that's where we left it the last time that we were together, and I know that's a fast cliff notes of it. But back in, Can in Canaan, the famine hit there as well. I mean, where Jacob was and the family was, they experienced this very same drought that was coming about. 
They had the same seven years of agricultural prosperity and plenty, but then the famine came and began the very next year. It affected Canaan so much that they had to come get help immediately. And that brings us to verse 1 of chapter 42. If you're there, look at it with me. It says, When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? <laughs> I love that verse. Does the father ever said to his kids, Why are you just standing there looking at one another? How many of you have ever heard that in your life? Come on. Why are you just standing there looking? Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there, that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. Now, if you do the math, you find out that this verse really does take place in the first year of the famine, and Jacob's family had not saved anything up. Some people are savers, some people are spenders. But when you know things are coming that can be difficult, when the warning is in the air, it's important to save. They didn't do that. Maybe they didn't know. I don't even know that. But they have no way to grow anything, but they think that's okay because we have money. And if you can't grow your own food, we know in the city what to do, you buy it. And they know that there's grain for sale down in Egypt, and Jacob heard about it. So he said, boys, I've heard that they're selling it. Go down there and buy enough of it to, so we can make bread and get through this very lean time. And as soon as the father says the name Egypt, these brothers just kind of go deathly white in their face. Egypt? Maybe that's what happened when he said, why do you stand there looking at yourselves? Maybe they thought they had seen a ghost in the room. Egypt, that's the last place, Father, that we would ever want to go. That's where we sent our brother. And, and he says, why do you look at one another? Why are you guys acting so strange? And uh, here's the deal. When was the last time they saw their brother Joseph? It was in that caravan heading down towards Egypt 20 years ago. Have you ever done anything bad maybe 10 years ago, 20 years ago, maybe 30 years ago, and you don't even think about it anymore? But every once in a while, it will come up when you don't even try to think of it. Maybe you'll see a name. Maybe you'll see a picture. Maybe you'll go by a location. And as much as you've tried to repress and forget that thing that you did wrong, it will come back up just as fresh as it was to haunt you and convict you when that happens. And, and when the reminders come, it affects our soul. Joseph's brothers had lived with a terrible secret for over 20 years, a secret they had never told their father, that it wasn't an animal that killed their brother, that they had cut him up and beat him up and threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery. And he'd taken this blood oath, if you will. We can never let Father know this as long as he lives. And I don't think the little brother knew it either. I don't think Benjamin knew what the older brothers had done. In fact, I want you to notice one brother wasn't even allowed to go with him to Egypt. In verse 4 it says, But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, Lest some calamity befall him. Now, if you understand uh, some modern parenting in the scripture of, that we're looking at, you see the definition in a poster of what a helicopter parent is like. 
A helicopter parent is someone that's so afraid for their little junior to go outside and uh, they put a helmet on them, they bubble wrap them, they make sure that they drink only Perrier water and they don't get any germs or anything and all the playground equipment. I get requests sometimes, people want to know how our, how our uh, mulch is treated around the playground. I said, well, the rabbits pee on it, the kids play on it. I said, it's mulch, what do you want it to be? Uh, and and we, 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 we've arrived in a new generation, haven't we? Uh, some of you that uh, have some snow on the ceiling like I do, do you remember the playgrounds where we grew up? I mean, do you remember that chain thing you used to go around and whack the kid in front of you with and swing it? And that merry-go-round and sling you off on that metal pole and you thought Jesus was coming? And that sliding board that was made out of hot steel. Say amen. You come down that thing, glory, God, Jesus. You went Pentecostal so quick you didn't know what happened. You go out here and look at this little passive. Anyway. <laughs> Jacob was a helicopter parent. And he wasn't going to let this little boy of his, who he loved so very much. The other boys want to go down to Egypt. They need to go. If they die, that's okay. But I've already lost my favorite son. I'm not going to lose my second favorite son. I'm keeping him with me. And so notice in verse 5 and following. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Now catch this, guys. This is something like a movie. Here's Joseph. He's dressed up like this fancy Egyptian guy. Maybe he's got the robe on. He's got the square little crown that the movies claim that they wear all the time. He's at the distribution place, and he hears, hey, there are people from Canaan coming over. The Canaanites are coming. And he said, well, that's where I'm from. Maybe I'll just stand over there and see if I recognize anyone. And people would come through, and, and he wouldn't recognize them. But then one day, he's standing there, and here comes a group of 10 guys kind of real close together walking in as they're coming. And he looks at them and says, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, could, could that be Levi? And they're older, but they were older when he was sold as a slave. <coughs> they already had the adult look, and he could recognize them. He was 17. You say, well, why couldn't they recognize him? Well, go home and look at your picture when you were 17, <laughs> and then go back and look at it when you were 40. Pot, gut. Everything, you know, what they say is you get older, what happens? You suffer from five Bs, ball-headed, bifocals, bridge work, bulges, and bunions. <laughs> and at, at 40, he'd already had the midlife crisis. And so they didn't recognize him, but he recognized them. And they have no idea who he is except being an Egyptian officer. So notice what it says in verse 6. It says, Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Now, guys, this is important. If they don't get the grain, they can't make bread. If they can't eat bread, they're going to die. There's nowhere else for them to go. So they do everything they can to be nice to him. They bow down to him. And I don't mean a, an English curtsy, a, a waist bow deep. 
but they go down prostate. They are down on the, on the ground. They're, they're, their nose is touching the grass, and, and they're exclaiming praise and almost adoration, going through all the motions that every desperate, every humiliated, and every starving person would do in order to get grain when there's a famine in the land. And I'll guarantee you that when that happened, Joseph was remembering a little dream that he had had 20 to 25 years before that. Do you remember that dream? The dream where he had told his brothers that God had given him a dream that where symbolically they would be bowing down before him, and now that dream was being fulfilled. That dream made those brothers so mad they did horrible things to Joseph that I mentioned earlier. And if I can get you to see something even more amazing, just think about this. Why was Joseph in Egypt? Joseph was in Egypt because his brothers thought if they could get him out of the country, if they could get him away from the situation, that, that deliberately uh, they, they could work against the message of what he thought in the dream. Uh, Joseph, we're never going to bow down to you. We'll just get you out of our lives. We'll sell you. We'll, we'll either kill you or sell you as a slave. And do you realize that by trying to defeat God's plan, they literally were setting God's plan in motion? Because God is sovereign, and God is going to rule over in this situation. And there's lessons we can learn from this. The biggest lesson, if you want to write anything on the back of your outline, maybe write this down. You can't defeat God's plan. You just can't do it. I can't do it, and you can't do it. You can't defeat God's plan. Why not just surrender to it? I mean, ask yourself, why am I being so stubborn to God? Some of you have been considering the claims of Christ in your life for weeks and months, and, and you keep resisting, and you say, well, I, I, don't, I don't know. I just, I just don't know that I'm ready, ready yet. I don't know if you're waiting for an emotional tug. I don't know if you're waiting for something supernatural, little angels to come down and tweep in your ear to, before you decide that that is Jesus Christ speaking to you. But you know in your heart what a man knows in his heart. God speaks to you. And Lord, why do I refuse to repent when I know God wants me to repent? God, why don't I want to obey when I know you want me to obey you in this way? And everything the brothers thought they were doing to defeat God's plan was actually being used by God to fulfill his plan. Notice in verse 7 with me. It says, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, where do you come from? Speaking real rough, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Now, later in verse 23, I want to tell you this. I'm spoiling it a little bit. We're, we're going to learn that Joseph was not speaking to them himself. He was speaking to them through an interpreter. Even though he understood Hebrew, this was part of the setup for him. His, he knew his brothers didn't recognize him, so he used an interpreter. And very roughly, you, you know, why, why are you here? What have you come here for? And so in verse 8, it says, So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And remember, it's 20 years later. 20 years is a long time. A lot can happen in the course of two decades. A lot of water flows under the bridge. A lot is forgiven and a lot is forgotten and never mentioned again. 
when sometimes people live together or have friendships together and they've been hurt and things have been wrong and it's never been made right, the water keeps flowing and it has never been resolved 20 years later and yet they still seem to be walking together. Some things are never mentioned, but they're never forgotten either. In 20 years, you can do so much. You can start a family. You can, you, you can get married. You can move on with your life. You can start a career. You can I- build an empire. You can accumulate great wealth in that amount of time. You can make yourself famous. You can be on top of the world in 20 years. Here's one thing you can't do in 20 years. You can't erase a guilty conscience. It just won't go away. That guilty conscience will stay with you. It's an odd thing. You know, the conscience is that moral barometer that measures when we've done something wrong in our soul. A conscience is that thing that reminds us the difference between right and wrong. And it's not a matter of religion or education or geography or ethnic origin. If you are a member of the human family, you were born with a conscience. It's part of God's original design. And and you get a conscience by virtue of being born on this planet. And, And in most cases, a conscience is a good gift because your good conscience can keep you out of trouble. But listen to this. Your conscience is not infallible. People have, some people have a bad conscience. People have hardened their conscience. It's not the same as the Holy Spirit. And your conscience does not have the power to compel you to good behavior. Conscience is like a street light that says the light's green. You keep going, the light's yellow. You keep going, the light's red. It will let you know what's happening, but it does not have the ability to to attract or to repel or to work in your life. Mark Twain once said, a clear conscience is the sure sign of a bad memory. (laughs) And I think he's probably right. It's also possible to have a seared conscience. If you go long enough and try hard enough, you can actually quell the voice of your conscience so that you no longer feel the pain of guilt. And that happens, when that happens, then what you once thought was wrong no longer seems so bad. What once kept you awake at night doesn't seem to bother you anymore. What once made your cheeks blush with shame, you now watch or look upon or act upon in in a very instant matter when it enters your mind. Maybe the brothers of Joseph thought the passage of time would remove their guilt. I mean, after all, they hadn't seen their brother. They hadn't heard from their brother since that fateful day when they tossed him in the pit. They dragged him out and sold him to the Midianites and then watched as the caravan took him away in chains as a slave to Egypt. They certainly assumed that he was dead, and why not? That's what happened to slaves. Slaves didn't have a long life expectancy at that time. And whatever moral judgments they were going to make, they couldn't bring Joseph back and would certainly never expect to see him again. And if their conscience... (laughs) Excuse me. If their conscience pricked them from time to time... If the unending sorrow on Jacob's life that they could see in their dad's life, that, that, that weather-beaten face now that always still misses Joseph all that time, it's been a long time since they've had to deal with it. They've been able to hide it and to conceal it, to quickly change the subject if it comes up. And to their father, they only spoke about Joseph in past tense words, not that he was still around. 
dead is dead and, and, and they're not dead and their conscience is not dead. Way down in Egypt, hundreds of miles away, through a sequence of events that seemed so fantastic, it could only be in a fairy tale, is that a prisoner's slave would become second in control of Egypt in a matter of seven years. That could move that quick. And let me suggest to you what could have happened after this 20 years when they gotten there and, and Joseph sees them for the first, tap, first time. Maybe if I'm Joseph, I see my 10 brothers out here, I would say something like this. Oh, Reuben, Levi, Simeon. Guys, I remember you. Let's turn the tables. Let's throw you in a pit. Let's cut you up. Let's sell you as slaves. Let's see how you like that for the next 20 years. He could have done that, but he didn't. Or it could have been he sees his brothers and he says, hey, guys, I know who you are, but you're not getting one grain of my grain. You're not getting anything. The way you treated me, if you want to survive, good for you. Get out of here. Go somewhere else. If God wants you to live, God will have to provide for you somewhere else. It won't be by me. Now go away. He could have done that. Or how about this? Okay, come take your grain. You're my brothers, but I don't want any involvement in your lives. Just get the grain and go away and leave. I don't want to reopen that chapter, that page. What you did is unforgivable. He could have done that, but he didn't. Or he could have gone, hey, guys, it's me. It's Joseph. I'm alive. It's so good to see you. Let's have a family reunion. Let's talk about this thing. But he didn't do that either. From the very beginning, he could have done that and saved the six chapters in the Bible, incidentally. But he still chose not to. Instead, what Joseph does is to begin a process that holds your interest over the next several chapters that I'm going to encourage you to read in the days ahead and see what God does for and in and through the life of Joseph. But I want you to see this morning is that Joseph didn't do this because he wanted to torture his brothers or to mess with their heads. And though Scripture doesn't say it, I believe that Joseph was being led by the Holy Spirit. Did you know that the Bible says that Joseph is the first recorded person in Scripture to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And I believe he was guided by the Holy Spirit. And if we look, stand back and look, we can ask, how does God begin to awake a guilty conscience? He does it exactly as Joseph does. How does God awaken a guilty conscience? conscience. He does it exactly the same way that Joseph does, a little bit at a time. The same way that we get light of good things that we need, God can also reveal light a step at a time of things that we need to deal with. And it's, it's rarely easy when God does that. And it's almost always painful. Jesus tells a story in the Gospel of Luke about a young man that went to his dad one day and says, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. I'm tired of being on this farm and slopping the pigs and mowing the grass and putting up the hay. Give me what is rightfully mine. And the Bible says he took it and went to a far city and wasted his living, wasted his money in riotous living. Cigarettes are killing And uh, he went to the big city, and this prodigal son found out that as long as he had money, he had friends. But he learned what everyone else learns, that when the money's gone, the friends are gone. 
They're going to go on to the next party, the next place, somewhere else. And it's noteworthy that in the story of Jesus, it says a famine came in the land and he was in need. Guys, I want you to know this. God often uses famines to bring us to our senses. And I don't necessarily mean literal famines, but areas that we normally get our resources from. They dry up and they go away and they force us to be drawn to God. At length, this man found himself, this young man in the New Testament found himself to be homeless and penniless and absolutely friendless. And he got a job slopping the pigs in, in, a, in, in a hog trough and, and eating their food. It was a terrible come down for a lad that thought he was going to live it up so much. But then in Luke 15, 17, it says these wonderful words. Listen, it says, he came to his senses. And that's what's beginning to happen, what we're hoping is going to happen in Joseph's story. You know, why did it take so long for the brothers to come to their senses? And we can answer that question two ways. First of all, God orchestrated it so that at the right time, at the right place, Joseph was there. If the brothers had come to their senses while Joseph was in prison, none of this would have worked out. But he's right there. For 20 years, they had buried their memories. For 20 years, they had fought against a guilty conscience. For 20 years, they had gone on as if the past didn't matter. But when the right moment came, they heard again the sound of their brother crying out from the pit. And they couldn't escape what they heard. And the second thing is, and this is very important, the brothers really probably weren't ready to hear this message up until this point in time. Up until this point in time, they still had a way they could figure it out. Do you, do you ever work with someone that's down and out? Maybe they're addicted to a drug or an alcohol or something, and you're trying to help them, and you tell them, if you're willing to walk away from that, we're willing to help you. And they say, thank you, but no thank you. Uh, you know, they have one more idea, more, one more way they can do it. I'll never forget 20-plus years ago being at St. Anne's Hospital visiting with a man who was there from drinking and had pancreatitis so badly. He was hooked up to IVs, and, and I went in the hospital room to visit him, and, and he, he wasn't there. He just left. And the nurse said, we didn't release him. He, he's gone. He just took off on his own. He had IVs in him. And we went out, and he pulled all the IVs out. He pulled his own catheter out. He put on his robe and his clothes and went out and rolled down the hill and called a cab and went to the liquor store. Just the addiction, he was still looking for ways to deal with the problems that he had instead of coming to the father. Uh, and it's an example of the prodigal son coming to the father and having help. And, and maybe there are times the prodigal son would have said, Dad, if you give me just one more day, one more day. But then when he came to himself, he came to his senses, and here's what we have to know about people coming to their senses spiritually. Repentance is a work that's done in the heart of humanity by Almighty God. It's nothing that we can orchestrate by encouraging someone to make a decision unless God is guiding and directing them. With one more day, maybe I can figure it out. And it leaves us with two things to say. If you're here today, what if you've been the the, the uh, victim, if you will? What if you've been the victim of mistreatment at the hands of others? What if you've been betrayed? What if you've been abused? What if someone's stolen from you, taken advantage of you, and they have not yet repented? You have to leave that in the hands of Almighty God. That can eat you up. You can't force them. Now, we have a judicial system that can make them pay for the crimes that they did, but that doesn't mean that they've repented on the inside. And to attempt to make someone repent truly is the, maybe the highest folly you can ever get involved in. 
You have to wait on the Lord and, and see what God's going to do that. And number two, if you, like Joseph's brothers, are burdened with the guilty conscience, maybe you've done something wrong. Well, here's the good news that I want you to know. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and Jesus will forgive you, and Jesus will help you. And I don't know when he will remind you of things that you've done wrong or your need of a Savior, but if you'll just be open and say, Lord, Jesus Christ, speak to me. If there's anything in my life that's not pleasing to you, please show it to me for the sake of our Young people that are with us today, I want to close with a personal illustration that is probably embarrassing to me. But as a young teenager, I uh, quit school. And I went to another city at the age of 15 or 16 and got a job washing dishes in a restaurant. It was appropriately called the Fat Boy Restaurant. <laughs> and... Uh, I was a good dishwasher. I was so good that in two weeks, the owner of that big boy restaurant chain made me the night shift manager of that restaurant. I thought, I'm going to do really well. And over the months that followed that, things just seemed to go really well. And then I came to my senses. I said, I need to do better. And I wanted to go back home and try to finish school and try to move forward and do something else. Fast forward with me seven years. I'm now 21, 22 years old. Deborah and I are married. I'm the best thing ever happened to her. And she's the best thing ever happened to me. You know that. We were living in a great metropolis of uh, Ravenswood, West Virginia, I think. And uh, no, I'm sorry. We didn't pay the rent there. Uh, we lived in Wheeling, West Virginia then. And one day I was driving through that town. I worked in a restaurant, New Martinsville, West Virginia. And as I'm driving through, I said, oh, yeah, I used to room, rent a room right there in that house with that school principal. That's where I used to go eat when I wasn't eating at our restaurant. And, and then we, I drove by the restaurant itself. And when I drove by, I said, man, I had such good times there. That's one of, there was one of those restaurants where you would push a button out in the parking lot and they would come in or you could go in and sit in the restaurant also and I thought about the curb boys and the great time we had and how I wanted to buy that moped that night and I was $20 short $20 between me and a moped so I'm the manager I just slipped my hand in the drawer and took out $20 and I bought that moped somehow I've forgotten about that seven years God had done a lot of things in my life. I had accepted Christ as a younger person, but when I was 19 years old, something happened on the inside of me spiritually that I've never gotten over yet. And uh, I had a business. I had several salespeople that worked for me at that time. And I was driving to Sistersville, West Virginia that morning to meet them. And, and I was driving a 1973 Green Vega. Those things were wonderful. They got about two quarts to the mile of oil. And, uh, and took a lot of gas, and, and I had the radio up full blasting, victory in Jesus. That was contemporary in those days, guys. And, uh, and I'm going down the road, and I'm looking at all those places. I said, glory, glory, glory. And yeah, there's a, the, 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 the fat boy restaurant I worked at. That was great that I was able to do that. And it's just victory in Jesus. And just out of nowhere, the Lord says, yeah, do you remember the night you stole $20? Hadn't thought of that in seven years. 
Seven years, the Lord brought it back to me. And you know how I handled it? Turned up the volume. Victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. Drove down a little farther, it wouldn't go away. I stopped the dumb car, turned it around, headed back up to that restaurant, went in, see, I didn't even know if the man still owned it or what happened, and uh, walked in, and the lady that was the cook when I was there, Edna was there, and she, she said, uh, Frankie, what are you doing here? I said, hi, Edna. I said, I'm looking for Paul. Is he here? She said, no, he's, he's down the road. She said, what do you want to see him for? I thought, it's none of your business what I want to see him for. I said, oh, it's not important. Just tell him I stopped in. So I got in the car, and I said, well, Lord, I tried. I'm going down there. Victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. Got it almost out of the city limit sign again. Said, you know you dirty dog need to turn around and go get this thing right. And I turned that Vega around again and came back up to the restaurant. Said, Edna, where's Paul at? I've got to reach him. She said, well, he's uh, over in Marietta, Ohio. Here's the phone number. And I couldn't get to him, so I called him. I said, Paul, you probably don't remember me. I'm Frank Carl, and I used to. He said, yeah, you're the little fat kid. I remember you <laughs> real well. I, I, he said, how you doing? I said, well, Paul, I'm married now. I'm in the insurance business. I'm doing really well. Paul, I did something when I worked for you that goes against everything I stood for. And I stole $20 out of the cash drawer one night to buy a moped. And he said, no, you did. And I said, please don't go there. Yes, I did. And I confessed it to him. And it hurt. And I said, I've left an envelope with that money plus lots of interest. And I asked you to forgive me for doing it. And it got real quiet. I thought he hung up on me. And he said this, if I live to be 100, I'll never forget it, young people. He said, Frank, of all the years I've been in business and people have taken from me, you're the first person that's ever come back to make it right. And he said, you don't know what that means to me. What he didn't know and what I didn't know at that point in time is that three years later, I would move to Ohio to Greer, the great metropolis of Greer over in Amish country, and take a little church that had a handful of people in it and try to grow it into something. And I needed help. And I went to the Mount Vernon Nazarene University and got a three-by-five postcard and put up in the student union hall, needed youth pastor, hard work, little money, great rewards. That's all I had on it. And my phone number, 419-599-7618, Frank Carl. And a young man answered that, and he came to work for me, six foot two. He was disgustingly handsome and tall, and he graduated Kuma here yonder or something from college. He's <laughs> a very brilliant man. And he hadn't worked with me for about two or three days till I realized this was that man's stepson. And I thought, Lord, I'm so glad that I got that right before I had to confess it through his son and going through that. I don't know why God would lay anything on your heart at any time, any point in your life, but do not ever resist the Holy Spirit of God. His timing is perfect. What he wants to do in your life and what he wants to do in my life are things that can change us for our own good. The best thing that ever happened to Joseph's brothers was Joseph. And Joseph being surrendered to the Holy Spirit when he could have whacked them, when he could have sent them away, he waited to see how God was going to play it out. It's all because of the grace of God. If you've been hurt, claim the grace of God. If you've hurt others, 
Claim the grace of God as you repent it, forsake it, and correct it. 